Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This episode is sponsored by the World Jewish Congress. Nice Jewish Girls is proud to be a part of the We Remember campaign, where we join the World Jewish Congress in honoring the six million Jewish lives lost in the Holocaust, as well as the survivors who have lived to tell their stories. On today's episode, we are talking with Tova Friedman, Holocaust survivor, public speaker, and psychologist. On this show, we've spoken a lot about the power of stories, why they are important, why they demand to be told. And there is perhaps no story that demands to be told more than that of the Holocaust. It's the greatest evil the world has ever seen. It's the most unimaginable tragedy. It's hard to learn about, but it must be taught. The world can never forget the horrors that occurred, just like it can never forget the survival that persisted. Yes, Tova experienced an evil I honestly have a hard time fathoming. But wow, did Tova survive? She built a career, she got married, she had children. She lived to tell her story and she lived a complete life. And she's going to share that story with us today. I could not be more thankful for that. I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Tova, it's truly an honor to speak with you today. Your story is as harrowing as it is moving, and I am so grateful that you've chosen to share with us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's an honor. So let's start from the beginning. There are not many more years that we have left, so I would like to share the story with as many people as possible. Absolutely. And I think that's so important, and it's just a tremendous honor to have you on our show today. Can you tell us where you're from originally, where you were born, where you grew up? Well, I was born in the polar section of Danzig, but mm-hmm. uh, it called Gdynia. But I was born one year before the war. So I have no memories at all. But I do know that my parents moved there from our town, which is a pretty big town, uh, Tomasz Mazowiecki. It was near Lodge. But they moved there because my father started a business and it was just a beautiful city. I, I was back there. It's it's right on the on the Black Sea. So it's got everything there. Wow. You discuss the times that fate had saved your life a lot when you discuss your story. Beginning when you were born in 1938, how was your family saved that day? Well, <laughs> by pure luck, maybe we went mm-hmm. back to our hometown because the war, we could hear the war. We didn't know when it would start, but the mm-hmm. anti-Semitism was very, very bad. And then it was my first birthday. So mm-hmm. my parents decided to go to their hometown and be with their parents. Mm-hmm. They had left a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Danzig was bombed and it was a, it was a strategic port. And mm-hmm. our my father's business was bombed. So we were, that day, we were very lucky not to be there. That's an incredible story. And your life is full of these experiences that are unimaginable growing up in the midst of the Holocaust. How old were you when your family was first moved into the ghetto? Uh, well, we moved to the ghetto right away because when mm-hmm. we came back to Tomaszow Mazowiecki, um, my grandparents and everybody already were in the ghetto because our mm-hmm. ghetto started very early. Like mm-hmm. uh, 1940, they came wow. and and the ghetto was right there, right? So the war started in 1939. So by the time we got there, we were, 
they were already in the ghetto. And how did your parents explain to you what was happening? Because you were just a kid at the time. They don't have to explain anything. If you grow up in a certain way, it's a way of life. Mm-hmm. They had nothing to tell me. I saw what it was. We moved into an apartment with a lot of other people. They didn't have to explain that to me. Mm-hmm. They just, they taught me how to behave, I think, mostly, mm-hmm. rather than, it was as natural as breathing, that that's how people live, if you are a year old, year or two years old. And how did your family get from the ghetto to Auschwitz? How did that exchange happen? That's a, that's a, you skipped a lot. I skipped a lot? <laughs> you skipped many, many years. Yeah. Uh, first, we were in the ghetto till mm-hmm. 1943. Mm-hmm. If you ever read anything about ghetto, uh, our ghetto, most of the people were killed very early. All the elderly, mm-hmm. the intellectuals, the rabbis, mm-hmm. the teachers, the doctors. So uh, from there, and they, they, they liquidated the camp. The camp was mm-hmm. closed. There was a method. You know, they would move us from place to place, and they took us to a, a labor camp. And my parents were uh, working in factories. And again, I was saved there by miracle because they had a lot of ch- children's selection. And in 1944, mm-hmm. when I was five and a half, we went to Auschwitz. Just myself and my mother, my father went to Dachau. And you speak a lot when you tell the story of your family being in Auschwitz about how your mother being honest with you helped you to survive. So how did your mother explain to you what was happening there? Well, she didn't explain anything. What she did, she verified what I saw. Mm-hmm. She didn't. So um, when we had just arrived at Auschwitz, we were all undressed because they were making sure that we're healthy. Those who weren't healthy would be killed right away, would go to the gas chambers because they mm-hmm. only wanted healthy workers. She explained this to me. I said, why are we all undressed? She said, we were undressed because... They want to make sure that we're healthy. Mm-hmm. So it, in other words, he didn't have to tell me what's going on. She verified what I saw so that I would understand it without being scared. Or She thought that um, honesty will help me survive. Absolutely. And at a certain point in the camp, you and your mother were separated. Were you with other children at this point? Did they understand what was happening? How did you guys experience this? Well, I was separated because I was ill, very, very, very ill. Mm-hmm. And they took me away from my mother. Most of the time, they would just kill the people. But mm-hmm. somehow, I, I got better. There were no doctors, mm-hmm. no medicine. And then they took me to the children's place. And that's where they tattooed all the children. And uh, we were there until the end of the war. And in the middle, you know, they tried to get rid of us. They took us to the gas chamber. And somehow, we never know what happened, but the uh, guest chamber didn't work that day. So we really made it to the very end, almost the last day when when the Allies came and the the Germans uh, fled. And how were you and your mother reunited? Well, she came and she, she knew where I was. I didn't know where she was, but she was with the women. She always followed where I was. And she um, took me out out of the children's place because it it was a chaos by then. Mm. And she said to me that they are having people march to Germany because they were trying to leave the witnesses 
which is also ridiculous. There were thousands of people and dead all over and live people, but they wanted no witnesses. So she took me and she hid me in a hospital with a corpse. Wow. And I stayed there until they literally left the camp because when they came to check the corpses, of course, they didn't find me. I was inside the blanket. So that's sort of the, uh, and she did the same. Wow. So that's the kind of, uh, and other people did the same thing. People hit in many ways in different places, not to go on the, on the march, which is, as you know, later, later known as the death march, because about 90% of the people died walking in the snow, barefoot and hungry. So we, we tried to avoid that. Wow. And what did you and your mother do once the, the Allied soldiers came? How we just stayed there. Mm. You know, we didn't know what to do. She was ill. We were, uh, we were starving. So we stayed there for, I don't know how long, at least five or six months to sort of recuperate. And then the, uh, the, uh, the Russians came, were there and they fed us and they had hospitals and mm. they baked for us. Wow. And then uh, the Red Cross came and they gave us a pass so that we can travel. Uh, on, on trains and buses for free because we had no money and everybody yeah. was going home trying to find out where was the last time they saw the people and see how many people survived. And this is an experience that would be traumatizing for anyone, but you were just a child at the time. So how did you understand this? How do you remember feeling about this all as it was happening? I thought that that's life. I thought that all Jews have to be killed especially children. Mm. You see, I didn't know any, any life before the war and I had no real life in the war. And after the war, Poland was very anti-Semitic and I couldn't go to school. Mm. So for some reason, I, I thought that that's, that it's a definition of being Jewish mm. is to have that type of, of, of life. And once you were in Poland with your mother, after you guys were liberated from Auschwitz, were you reunited with your father? Yeah, my father came about, about a year later because he was, first of all, Dachau was liberated by Americans. It was in Germany. And he was liberated about six months after we were. So, and he wasn't well. So until he, everybody came back to the, where they saw each other last, hoping that somebody also would come back. And it's true, everybody from all over the world, from all the camps and everything, everybody went what they remember as home. And those who, who were alive and lucky to be alive were united with their families, whoever wow. was and there. You guys, somehow, all of you guys surviving is such an, a miracle and it's incredible. I think to so. Hear. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because there are very few families. Uh, my mother lost everybody. She lost 150 people, sisters, brothers, nieces, nephews, everybody. My father lost um, about five, their family of eight, of four survived, and one mm. was killed in Poland after the war mm. by the um, anti-Semites that roamed, by the groups that roamed the streets. Wow. So that was in a pogrom even after the Holocaust, so that wasn't even, so this person had survived the Holocaust, but still ended up dying in Poland? Exactly, yeah. Wow. That's yeah, that's... Horrifying. 
she was only 23 years old. She was, and her husband, she was married very, very young. Like just, I think about a, a few months before the war started. He was a Jew that came from Germany because Germany expelled all, all the yeah. Jews at one point. And he came to, to our town and they met. And then he died. Wow. He was they killed. He was a he was a lawyer. So they killed them together with all the intellectuals when they killed first, you know. It's horrible. And after your family moved to Poland, you all moved to the United States a couple of years later? Not yet. We still we still went to Germany. We went to the peep camp, displaced people's camp. We didn't know where to we had nothing. Yeah. After you and your family were in Poland, where did you guys go after that? You went to Germany? Yeah, exactly, which is sort of ironic. We had to sneak yeah. into Germany because because the Russians have, you know, the Russian, look, look at the interesting world situation. The Russians mm -hmm. save us, right? Because mm -hmm. of the Russians, I'm alive. Poland became communist and they were very tough and we could not leave uh, the country. Mm -hmm. So we had to sneak out in the middle of the night to go to Germany. But we went to Berlin and there was the American sector. Mm -hmm. And from there, we went to a DP camp, displaced people's camp, run by Americans. And from there, we went to America. What was your experience like in the displaced people's camp? I happened to like it very much because it was mm -hmm. safe. First of all, I was among Jews. Yeah. And I knew that nothing will happen to me. Mm -hmm. And I went to school for the first time. Mm -hmm. It was a very Zionistic place because they sent teachers from Israel to teach us. Mm -hmm. So it was a good, oh, I, but I also had TB at the time. So for oh, about wow. nine months, I was in a TB sanatorium. But on the whole, uh, I was treated, we were all treated very well that I remember. You know, the camp was a very vibrant camp with schools and uh, sports uh, groups. We had movies, we had, it, it was a, and even we marched in the independence parade in, in 1948 when Israel mm -hmm. became a state. It was, a, it was in many ways a healing place for people who had no place to go. Wow, that sounds like being around Jews for you was that feeling of safety. It gave absolutely, you absolutely, you yes. Wow, and how old were you when you moved to the United States? Uh, I was uh, eleven and a half. And you'd expressed earlier on in our conversation that when you were in Poland, when you were in Auschwitz, that's what life felt like to you. That was normal. Right. So. When you moved to the United States and you came back to something that's close to normal for what an American Jewish experience is. It was not normal at all. Yeah. What was it like for you there? First, I, I couldn't relate to the kids. No. And they didn't want to hear a thing about us. Wow. My teacher told me to cover up my arm. I shouldn't, nobody should see the number and I shouldn't talk wow. about it. It was not a good experience to come back, to come, except that I'm a reader. So I learned mm -hmm. to read and I spend most of my time reading and I mm -hmm. did very well in school. But social, I, I, I could not relate to those kids who, you know, they, they didn't get any. They didn't get it, and the teachers refused to tell them. So we were How's like that? hidden children. We were hidden. Wow. That's horrible. Did that change at all as you got older? The Holocaust has only been, been open to people not a many years. Mm -hmm. 
maybe maybe 40, maybe 30 years before that, nobody wanted to hear anything about it. Mm-hmm. So we, we had to sort of suppress our feelings and our memories and so forth. Do you think that's why you're so passionate about speaking out about it now? Because for so long you couldn't? Maybe, yes. I started speaking where my kids were in high school. Mm. I spoke only to the high school kids. And also because I'm getting older and because there are a lot of revisionists, people who say it didn't happen. And I just, I, I, I'm a witness. And mm. I want to make sure that my story already represents millions of other kids. You know, a, a million and a half of children were killed. They already had to tell their story. But they had the same story as I did. Just luck. I was in the right place, the right time or something. A lot of luck in surviving. It wasn't brain, a little bit of brain, but it wasn't, with us, it wasn't money. And it was a lot of luck. How have you told this story to your children? Did you wait until they were a certain age? How have you been able to express this? No, no, no. I don't believe in that. I think kids should know. As soon as they're able, first they looked at my number, so I told them a little bit, and every year I told it. In fact, they grew up with it. They know all about the Holocaust from the time they could. They were old enough to, to get the concept. Some four, I have four children. Some were younger, some were older, but they always knew about it. And how do you think learning about that story impacted their lives? You told us that you never felt connected with the American Jewish community as a child. Well, do you think that you're... you're, No, wait a minute. Excuse me. Uh, Maybe I didn't make it clear. I didn't get connected when I was younger. I'm talking about 11 years old. I'm not talking about now. Absolutely. Of course, I've been... I, I also lived in Israel for many years. It was much easier for me to be connected there. But no, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a therapist. I've been working in a community for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But um, I want my children to be very Jewish. Mm-hmm. And part of being Jewish is our Holocaust story. Absolutely. And they all went, they all went, most of them went to uh, day schools. Very important to me. So after you moved to the United States, you grew up, you became a therapist, which I think is so interesting because you're helping other people to heal and you've been through so much yourself. Do you think your experiences helped you with that? Yeah, I think yeah. I think that it's good for me. And also I, I can see there are problems and perspectives mm-hmm. and how to deal with it. But I also taught in the Hebrew University when I wasn't a therapist. This is my second career. Mm-hmm. But I always felt that uh, because I was who I was, and I understand other people's pain and traumas, and traumas come in all different shapes and forms. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Traumas come, and I, I understand the whole process of how to get on with your life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And speaking out about your story, what do you hope people will gain from it? What do you hope people will learn from your story? Very hard to say different people will learn different things, but that you can overcome adversity. I think that's what it is. Like with the COVID now, uh, the people are doing very well with COVID, by the way, because some of my clients are hysterical. Others became very introspective. They do reading a lot if they can't go out or they work uh, remotely like I do. So some people can 
are doing well, really well with it, and other people don't. So the the perspective is this too shall pass. That's that's what I have to say. This too shall pass, and that there is hope. I'm very big on developing hope in people because once you become hopeless, you can't get out of the mess you're in. Do you think that hope helped you to survive when you were a child? I'm not so sure, but the woman who tattooed me was a young woman, about 18. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, when you survive, she didn't stay. Well, she she sort of gave me hope that I'll survive. Mm -hmm. And she told me to cover up my arm when I get up. So I shouldn't be embarrassed. But the idea that I could survive, you know, was... As a child, I really didn't feel it that much. I think that every hour was a struggle, every single hour. And when you made it that night, you were very happy. Has your understanding of what you went through as a child changed as you've gotten older, especially as you now work to help others process their trauma? I carry it with me all the time. Mm -hmm. It's it's not something that you can leave behind. But I Mm -hmm. think it's not a trauma, it's just a scar. Yeah. And, you know, and that helps me remember that other people have scars and how to deal with it. And should we open scars or should we close scars? Some scars you live with comfortably. Mm-hmm. Other scars have to be opened so they yeah. can heal. I think that's what I, I, I differentiate between these two types of scars. Yeah. One of the biggest things is the importance of family. I think that if my mother hadn't been there, I would have died probably. Mm -hmm. And then when the war was over and she didn't find anybody, she was extraordinarily upset and she died very early. But those who have families during the war and after did much better. Friends and family Mm -hmm. keeps your emotions in check. Absolutely. And you expressed that you were really young when this all happened to you. So this was what was normal for you. But for your parents, they were a little bit older. After the Holocaust, how did they move on with their lives? Were they able to heal like you were able to find that healing? My mother never healed because Mm -hmm. she lost too many people. She died at the age of 45. My father did. I'm so sorry. My father remarried. And and yeah, and and he seemed, and also living in Israel. For my father and myself was very healing, very Mm -hmm. healing. And Israel is sort of a healing place for all Jews, even if you don't go there. It's still Mm -hmm. part of your life. And you expressed that even being in the camp in Germany, being around other Jews for you was healing. Do you think that's why Israel was so healing for you too, that you were able to be around a community that understood what you'd gone through? Well, absolutely. There's no, as far as we know, there is no anti-Semitism. It's not an egalitarian society. Everybody has social classes like everywhere else, but at least you don't hear dirty Jew and things are not forbidden. It's a symbol, I think, for all the Jews in the world that we are respectable people. I guess that's the way to put it, you know? Yeah, you'd spoken about hope, how hope got you through. In a sense, that's your symbol of hope, a hope that we'll survive and we'll have the strength to be our own people. And this all is our hope, with all its faults. It's mm-hmm. really our hope. And my grandkids go there every a lot. Yeah. And because of the COVID, I used to go every single year, but now I can't. Mm-hmm. But we have Israel as part of our 
daily life experience. If I can't go there, I speak to my friends who live there. I just spoke this morning to a friend. Just yeah. like Holocaust is our past, mm. Israel is our future. Absolutely. And when you lived in Israel, and even when you lived in the U.S., were you ever able to connect with other Holocaust survivors? All the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, and I came to high school in New York, lived in Brooklyn, I was connected to, rather than the American children, kids, I was connected with the Holocaust survivors. And we spoke the same kind. We understood each other. We yeah. knew what everything meant. And then in Israel, of course, it just it's just the freedom. You really feel this is your home. You talked about healing. Do you think being able to speak with other children who'd been through what you went through helped you to heal? Oh, a lot. A lot. Yeah. Yeah, we spoke to a lot. Uh, I don't know if you know that famous picture with my showing my arm. My uh, yes. Well, next to me is standing a boy, Michael. And, bef- and, and then there is a little girl. Her name is Sarah. And mm-hmm. Sarah, without my knowledge, was the teacher of my grandchildren wow. uh, in, 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 a, in a private school in New Jersey. Wow. So life really came around full circle. Right. We really connect with each other, the ones who are Holocaust survivors. And I used to go, of course, nothing now, is child of Holocaust survivors. They have conferences once a year. Wow. And we meet and we talk and we understand each other, really. So you speak really passionately about how there aren't that many survivors left in the world. And it's really important for us to hear and preserve these stories now. How can we ensure that these lives will never be forgotten? Well, what you're doing is great. Right now is what you're doing. I heard, I'm not sure, that there are like 15,000 books about the Holocaust. 15,000. Mm-hmm. Many memoirs, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and of course, programs like you're doing which is people will watch us after we're not here anymore. Mm-hmm. So th- that's a terrific memorial. Mm-hmm. And um, it has to be taught, taught in schools, I guess. And also preserving the memories of people who were lost in the Holocaust. I think the stories of your mother's family, hearing about them and what happened to them is also really important. Also the trips to the camps to see that it really happened. It's real. One of my grandkids went on March of the Living. To, my son and my grandson went to, on the March of the Living. So that becomes real. To, to make it as if it's not ancient, unimportant history. It's part of humanity and the danger that if you're not careful what hatred can do, it can be connected to other people. It does not have to be just Jewish. Genocide takes place in Africa and all different places, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And taking your story and knowing that the power of your survival can motivate others to learn about hatred to prevent this from ever happening right, again. Exactly. It's important. Right. Racism and hatred and, and prejudice and not trusting the other people and feeling that, that, that this earth is too small. If I want to be here, that they have to die. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's, that's what happened. I think that if you bring it as part of humanity, you'll be able to preserve it more, that it's not a Jewish-only history. It is a human history. Yeah, you've really taken your life and made it about something bigger than just you. You've created this legacy of survival and 
survival in the face of hatred that will far outlive any of us. Who knows? <laughs> I'm just finishing a book. I'm writing with somebody wow. who was helping me. Yeah. Another book added to the 15,000 uh, books. But each book is a story of someone's life, you know? Right. I'm excited to read it. And a lot of it's about the ability to survive and mm-hmm. not only, and afterwards to thrive. Not only to, we were not just survivors, we're thrivers, whatever that is. Absolutely. And the trauma does not have to be or something that keeps you from functioning. They have a new term called, I think it's called trauma growth. Mm -hmm. You have a trauma and you can sort of get over it and grow from it, learn from it. It's possible too. I think that really brings us to the last question that we have for every guest and what this podcast is about. Your story is unbelievable. And the young Jewish people listening to it today We'll never have lived through what you've lived through, but can hopefully take something from your story and feel stronger because of it. So what's one piece of advice that you'd want to give a young person listening to this podcast today about how to navigate the world as a Jewish person and not just survive, but thrive, just like you said? Right. Well, first of all, I like to give them hope mm-hmm. that because without hope, you'll just go to bed and sleep yeah. or something. <laughs> but hope that that they can in some way contribute to the world, in some, to some society, even if it's some club they go to or their community or their temple or their church. I don't know. That our individual uh, behavior is important, every one of us. And being a bystander doesn't do any good. You have to participate in what you see things around. Sometimes I speak to schools and I speak to bullies. Well, that's the beginning of racism and hatred. So every one of us can somehow leave this earth a better place. I really feel that true. Tova, you truly are doing that. You're taking your story that could have been something that made your life Full of pain, but instead you've taken it and made your life full of hope. And it's so inspiring to hear your story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. I just want to say one thing. That's how I win yeah. over Hitler. Yeah. If I made my life a tragedy, then he would have won. Yeah. But if I make my life a positive and have children and grandchildren, he didn't want them to be here. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how you win over evil. Absolutely. And that's, I think, the most inspiring thing that anyone can hear, that you you won over all of the hatred that you faced. And it's evil. Absolutely. You won over evil. And that's, that's just unbelievable. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. It really means so much. And I'm excited for all of our listeners to hear this. Thank you very much. Sometimes I think about the future, about a day when our grandchildren will learn about the Holocaust and the horror that occurred. By then, there likely won't be any survivors left. But that's not the world we live in now. We are the last generation to live among Holocaust survivors. That's an immense responsibility. It is up to us to preserve this history, to hear stories like Tova's, to share them, to teach them, to take them to heart, to learn from them. Because never again means actively fighting against Holocaust denial, Holocaust distortion, and Holocaust revisionism. 
Nevarega means preserving the history of the Shoah. Nevarega means listening to survivors and witnesses like Tova. Nevarega means honoring them in their stories. Nevarega means that today and always we remember. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. Your feedback is critical to making this show the best it can be. So contact us at podcastjewishimpact.com. And don't forget to join us next week when we'll be speaking with Cheddar News anchor, Jill Wagner. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. And be sure to follow Unpacked at all of the social media places. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies. <laughs>